All right. Welcome to another Ambushed Podcast. Let's get it started. So today is the first time that I've ever had a guest or an interview. Fortunately, it's somebody that I've known for a long time. <laughs> it's my little brother, Steve. Hi, Steve. Hi. That's all. So I've been wanting to do an interview podcast for a while, but I didn't know who to start it with, and I thought Steve would be a good one. So Steve is another graduate from Eastern University, has also gone to Villanova to get a Master's of Sacred Theology. Is that right? No, no. It was a, um, an MA in Theology. A Master's of Sacred Theo- uh, Theology has to come from basically Rome. Uh, yeah, it's a separate sort of certification or sort of degree that is okay. Rome's own academy and has Rome's own standards to it. Okay. I, yeah, know, I know people who hold those degrees. Uh, That's an intimidating degree to be able to say. I have yeah. a master's a of doctor, sacred theology. It's a yeah, master's of sacred teaching and a doctor of sacred theology or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's impressive. Well, I only have a master's of divinity, so Steve right now is the more educated and therefore the more intelligent between the two of us. But Steve, why don't you say what you just finished? Yeah, uh, so I have spent the last year at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland uh, with their master's program in science and religion. And the factors that brought me there are multiple. Uh, but one of them was my interest in a particular theologian who taught there for about 20, 25 years. Uh, his name is Thomas F. Torrance. Uh, and then alternatively, I just had some personal commitments that brought me to, to, to the country as well. But as far as academics... Uh, TF having TFT having taught there for as long as he did, uh, I thought that would be a good place to not necessarily learn what he had written, learn his own theology, but to sort of learn how to do theology like he did. Right. But then your first exposure was really in college. To yeah, Torrance. yeah. My first exposure was by uh, one of my professors, whose name is Eric Flett, who himself did uh, his PhD work on T.F. Torrance and anthropology, basically, theological anthropology. And it was in a Christology class where we, as a bonus text for one of our papers to read and to, to write about, we had one of his books on the list, a book by the name of Space, Time, and Resurrection, which is a, an incredible book, and I found out later is actually volume two of a sort to a follow-up to a first book called Space, Time, and Incarnation, which is still one of my favorite books to this day, uh, certainly when it comes to, to theology. 
Right. Mm -hmm. So, I thought it would be just fun to interview you and ask you who would be some of the more underrated theologians in the church today. Mm -hmm. Because certainly in North America, there seems to be a pregnant time where it seems like things... There's a large number of people who identify as being spiritual but not being Christian. It's like the Christian religion they've been handed, they find it lacking. But I tend to think it's maybe because we have to get some deeper, richer roots from some of these big names rather than some of the others. But just for the sake of fun, mm -hmm. how about, do you have a, a story about me and you you want to share first? <laughs> oh dear. Because Stephen is five years younger than me, but we've both pretty much had the same interests of outdoorsy camp ministry, doing stuff with youth, theology, and The Simpsons. Oh dear. I mean, what sorts of stories are there? There are <laughs> most of... I'm not sure I can think of any single one other than some of like the big go-tos that we always we talk about. But uh, you know, right. I, I think most of it is just that we have been continually antagonistic towards each other about all manner of things. <laughs> and with our increasing and parallel levels of uh, academic interest, usually that means our us badgering each other has become more and more exclusive as people don't understand the jokes that we're making. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. For anyone that's listening, our parents don't know what to do when we start riffing off on religion or philosophy and theology and critical thinkers from the past, really, 2,000 years in some ways. But yeah, I, I can't think of any right now but mm. there was one time we were just talking about this Steve and I used to share a bedroom and one morning Steve woke up mm. and just screamed at the top of his lungs that he was blind full disclosure I had I had I was young you know under 10 years old and had gunk in my eyes of sufficient mass that it kept me from opening them uh so, quite naturally, I thought I was blind, and I made that opinion known very loudly. <laughs> By waking everyone else up in the house. By shrieking, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but that, that got resolved. I indeed can see. Uh, <laughs> I was just particularly ill or something, you know, whatever yeah. happens to little kids when they're just really back. sick. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I don't know of anybody else who really knows Torrance. As well as you do. Mm. Seriously, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but why do you think TFT or Torrance is one of the more underrated voices and why should he be read more often today? Okay, uh, so TFT should be read more. A, because he is sort of timely enough. He's recent enough that... His language is far more accessible, uh, but then also he has a just incredible view of the centuries. Now, granted, he was not a he was not a historical theologian; he was more of a systematic theologian. And what tends to happen, one of the critiques against him, is that he is 
he can be a little weak on the side of historical theology. So he has a tendency every now and again to sort of find authors in history sort of already agreeing with what he says and what he thinks. Uh -huh. um, I know that's a critique that Alistair McGrath launches against him, where he says, you know, just there are times where he tends to read, Torrance tends to read what he thought perhaps too much into uh, right. what his authors were. But I think he's, he's important because he understands all of it so well. And his work with Karl Barth especially, he was one of the, um, the editors for Church Dogmatics. G.M. Bromley helped translate it. And then he even became the executor of Barth's estate once Barth had passed. So, of course, Karl Barth being the, the absolutely incredible and mammoth figure of um, Reformed theology who you sort of, if you're doing academic theology, especially systematic or historical, you generally at least have to have an opinion about him. You can't really be neutral. Mm. Just because, likewise, Bart read everybody, talked about everybody, interacted with everybody, right. even though he was also answering some very timely issues. Like, you, you know, there are many ways that he's, he's responding. To. Yeah, he's responding to a whole host of things and a whole host of other theologians like um, Kant, Feuerbach, Mm -hmm. um, the rise of Nazism in Germany, like just he he yeah. Bart occupies a very interesting place. Boltmann. Yeah, and somewhat then Tillich. TFT learns a lot of lessons from him, uh, but I think also sort of builds on what he was saying in a way that's different, given that TFT is working and living and writing largely in a British context, British analytic context, as opposed to Bart, who worked in the sort of German the academic. German. Right. Mm -hmm. So. For people that don't know, if you are somewhat conservative in your theology at all, it's because of Karl Barth. <laughs> Whether you know it or not, there was the rise of the liberal German theology that kind of swept across Europe the end of the 19th century. And Karl Barth, once some of his famous teachers that he once looked up to started to support the world wars, he couldn't, he had to make a break with it. And Torrance was his one of his understudies. So. Yeah, he and and frequently he's regarded as being some call Torrance Bart's um, great Scottish theologian or great Scottish pupil. I've seen right. that show up in, in a couple of books. But I think he's he's tremendously helpful because at the very start of his life he was doing a lot of work with the patristics and historical theology and learning a good deal under Bart himself. And then towards the late, in, later in his life, especially from the 60s onward, the 1960s onward, he ran into the writings of a guy named Michael Polanyi, who was a chemist turned philosopher of science, who in many ways has contributed to what is now known as the critical realist school of thought. Um, and in, he has done a, a surprising amount commenting on sort of the nature of indwelling as a form of teaching and pedagogy in the sciences. So that is to you say... you got to break that down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> that is to say that you don't necessarily learn the sciences strictly from textbooks. That there's a good mm. deal of, of how you do science, whichever field it is, that comes from having been taught by a scientist. There's still a, a sense of community and... and you have Almost to fully dive into the field. Yeah, um, that's that's necessary. And and Polanyi's point in many cases is that you never really can divorce the person from what they're knowing. 
and then likewise the effects that that has with and to a scientific method of a sort and mm. that the the self is always implicated in what they're knowing and that there's no sort of without saying that there's no objectivity it's saying that you have to be able to use your subjectivity to actually see what is objective right rather than it being one or the other it's a both and right because we all have lenses you can't yeah yeah and the them. problem isn't getting rid of your lens and it isn't making it so translucent or tr so transparent that you don't see it it's just recognizing that it is that it is there and being able to differentiate between yourself and what you think and what may indeed be the case outside of you external to you right yeah so I feel as though there's a large number of people out there that predominantly know the popular, the pop culture theologians, like a John Piper, mm -hmm. or I guess Ortberg is more pastoral. There's still Eugene Peterson and some of the others, but mm -hmm. what would be Torrance's best contribution or some of the, the good contributions? That maybe should be heard today. Sure. I mean, here, I my understanding of Torrance is that he tried to stop seeing religion and science as being antagonistic towards one another. Mm -hmm. Like, he was one of the, the voices that said these two fields of study can work together, and they don't necessarily have to disqualify mm -hmm. or demean each other. Yeah, one of the, the frequent right? paradigms yeah. that you run into... Uh, is a fourfold paradigm between the relationship of science and religion. And it, it pretty much goes between complete conflict and almost some complete assimilation between the two. Okay. So you have the two that are, that are utterly disparate from each other and, in fact, in conflict with Just each other. Just full enemies. And then the, uh, the far opposite side, which says that they are so integrated that you can't really differentiate one from the other. Hmm. Yeah, which, again, is... That same issue you can you can transpose to a whole number of other areas, but and in many cases, as far as the the academic field is concerned, the the conflict narrative is basically defunct. It just it it is. Wait, it is the view that science and religion are in full conflict mm -hmm. is passe. That's. It's getting that way. Among yeah. academics, they're no longer seeing those two as being. Well, I mean, especially within the science and religion field, yes. It's just, it's not seen to be tenable. Um, but in pop culture, they are. Yeah, in pop culture, it's still alive and well. And typically, that is the case. Their particular views occur at the academic tier that take a couple of decades to sort of trickle into right. pop culture. So right now, especially on the wings of um, the tremendous output of writings by like the, the third wave or new atheist movement. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You have... That, that has, has attached and grabbed onto a lot of popular culture. The most interesting thing about it, though, because in many cases, their critiques are helpful. Like, they're not, they're not necessarily oh, okay. mm -hmm. sort of wrong-headed, but many times they're saying things that are actually accurate for us to, to take into account. It doesn't work to just sort of say, oh, but they're atheists, therefore we can ignore them. Um, that's just uncharitable. And Right. No, they have good critiques. Yeah. There was a time... Last summer, I don't know if you know the story, but when I was hiking along, I was in New York, hiking north, and I had ran into a new group of people, 
And one night we're sitting around the bonfire and all I did was quote Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all I said was I really like the quote that life without music is pointless. Mm-hmm. I think that's maybe what it says. And they were all completely bewildered that someone who used to work at a church knew Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, like there's, there's good critiques that comes from mm-hmm. the other field. Yeah, and, and Nietzsche and... Why wouldn't I read Nietzsche? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, as, I mean, he's, he's a really interesting case, I think. Both Nietzsche and Feuerbach, I think, are, are mm-hmm. two of the theologians, especially theologian philosophers, that... Um, people in general need to read more and churches and theologians need to read more because the critiques that they launch are so fundamental and inform so much of what goes on today. So like Nietzsche and, and ideas of power and authority, the, the oh, place right. of the, the will to power and the authority of the self, the ultimate authority of the self over the external world. That's just that, that informs so much of what goes on today that people don't even know this is something Nietzsche really like is talking stomp about. stomp out capitalism. I mean, most any of those... Just tread over others. Uh, yeah, just uh, a lot of the things that, that come from either Nietzsche himself or misreadings of Nietzsche. Oh. Which mm-hmm. also occurs as well. Um, and then Feuerbach, since he ultimately, one of his, his big takeaways, one of his big critiques that Bard especially responds against is that whatever humanity thinks of as the divine, as divinity, as the thing out there that is above creation or beyond it, uh, is ultimately just a projection. Mm-hmm. These all of them. I mean, in a way that you get from, uh, say, like Freud and Jung, that all we all God is is our infantile desires for protection and a big man in the sky. Right. A lot of that also comes from Feuerbach and Bart and Torrance respond to that, and I think that's an incredibly good thing for them. So, to be doing. what do you think about? Christianity in America today and how I think a lot of people are walking away from it because they do think it is a matter of a massive projection into the sky, Mm -hmm. you know? So what's the contribution there of Barton Torrance towards that? I mean, what do you think American Christianity needs to learn or have more conversations about? Do you have a thought? I do, yeah. I think one of the, the, the better conversations to be having, one that will get to the roots of, of many issues, is the conversation about how do you read a text. Okay. By which I mean, not just reading books, especially as that, that very quickly turns into issues about concerning Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 in the creation mm-hmm. narrative, sure. Uh, but that also is the same sort of question that arises in the sciences, so it's so fundamental mm. that it's an easy way to start addressing what many people perceive to be two disparate fields, science and religion. Mm. But by asking one question, you're starting to address something foundational to both. Again, how do you read a text? So for a scientist, this is something like, how do I read, um, not, not necessarily your, your like test results or something like that, although that also will, will bear part of it. But it's more, how do you read what in prior centuries was called, like, the book of nature. Oh, by Emerson. Emerson used to make that. Emerson makes that. Uh, I believe the distinction itself comes even as far back as, like, Francis Bacon, Roger oh, okay. Bacon. Yeah, it's, it's an older distinction that is closer to the Reformation and the Enlightenment 
than it is to Emerson. Right. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I like about Bart and Torrance mm-hmm. was that they approached doing theology as a science in this sense, that they tried to at least hold to the idea that you have to study an object according to it mm-hmm. and how it is to be studied. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you want to word that, but at least in Christian circles, like you can't talk about God if God has chosen to be known by Jesus. And so to try to come to God by any other means, it's like trying to study water as if it's a rock. Mm-hmm. It's trying to study something in a way that it was never meant to be studied. Yeah. One of the recurrent phrases you will see throughout most of TFT's corpus uh, is, I think he got, he got it ultimately from Polanyi, but he will say that the object you seek to know determines the way in which you know it. Wait, say it again. The yeah. object? The object you seek to know will determine the way in which you know it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I can learn many things about my next door neighbor just by being next to them. I can figure out that, you know, some of their, their tendencies, male, female, religion possibly, mm-hmm. um, their height, their weight kind of, you can guess. You can learn a lot of details about the, the numbers of them. How much they weigh, how much they... Uh-huh. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily tell you about them. Except, the person. Yeah, except insofar as you can start to learn some things about how they behave. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a different kind of learning that occurs when I just remotely observe my neighbor than when I talk with my neighbor and say, Hey, who are you? How are you? Come over for dinner. Mm-hmm. Oh, you play tabletop games. Interesting. Wow. Oh, you have a scar from something <laughs> right. that happened. So there's, there's a fundamentally different kind of interaction that goes on and a different kind of knowing and arguably a different kind of, you could say, revelation that occurs hmm. between the, the person, my neighbor, who in some sense is always revealing themselves as they go about their daily lives, but you're learning a different kind of information from them when they start giving you their own biography and their own self-reflected oh. material. And in many ways, this is the same sort of argument, the same sort of logic that will turn into the natural theology versus revealed theology debate. Right. Well, that's, yeah. and that's Bart's understanding of God is that God reveals himself. Mm-hmm. And so all knowledge of God, if God really is absolutely completely other than us in every form, capacity, and way that we can ever think... Mm-hmm then we can't get to any knowledge of God on our own understanding. It has to come from God self-revealing. Bart, I think, would take that position, yes. Or, or people want to characterize him as taking a really strong view on that. Um, well, he, Bart really didn't like a natural theology. He said you, in every capacity, you can't look at nature and deduce anything about God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but I think that's... Rather close. Yeah. Well, one of the other ways to put it, and I think this would this could be, this is part of TFT's response, is that you. How would I want to put this? <laughs> I think TFT is more is this comfortable. Offensive? No, no. I okay. think TFT was is more comfortable with there being a sort of natural theology, a sort of well, mm. if God were X, He would be like this. It would stand to reason that. So there, there is a ground to make some claims about natural theology concerning God. However, all of those claims 
are relativized by whatever mm-hmm. revelation there would be of God. So again, back to the example of my neighbor. I can think many things about my neighbor. Where I go, oh, okay, you know, maybe they are, you know, I see my neighbor and I go, oh, they're, they're female. Okay, great. And then I find out, you know, maybe they're transgender or something. Mm-hmm. I would not necessarily have known that. Mm-hmm. So whatever my, my first thoughts are, that I just sort of go, oh, well, maybe this is the case, that will be relativized by whatever they reveal of themselves to me. Oh, that might be a corrective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there are correctives to it. It isn't, it isn't uh, uh, it's more porous and more pliant and able to change. There's a more plasticity to our knowing than there is otherwise. Right. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like about Bart and Torrance is they both seem to emphasize that Christianity is more robust than people think mm-hmm. and can handle far more yeah. conversations with other fields. Mm-hmm. Um, not just the sciences, but I mean, over the past couple of centuries, Christianity has, Western Christianity has seemed to have a confusing relationship with art, with music and things, and it sounds like it's starting to get over its hurdle with sciences. Mm-hmm. But the confusing relationship mm-hmm. being like is would this be over iconoclasm or well, I mean yeah some some places would avoid having too much pictures because they want to avoid some form of idolatry but I think it's also just a poor appreciation for the role of beauty in worship services in inspiration in the world around you we're very much um possibly since the enlightenment we've been very focused on god as a rational being and trying to prove god rationally mm-hmm. um and maybe less so through some other means such as beauty i mean some people kind of blame kierkegaard for the dismissal of beauty by his making the faith very very much about the personal inner experience so that the externals don't really matter. Mm-hmm. You can also see the same sort of thing uh, emerging out of uh, Descartes. Mm-hmm. And, well, Descartes probably would be the, the best sort of signpost for this insofar as he worked with this or, or he has been read to work with this sort of substance dualism between your body and your mind in a way that, that puts such a distinction between them that things which are belong to the body are things that are more public, mm-hmm. sort of the, the numerical aspects, weight, height, uh-huh. number of atoms that make me up, the like, and, and the like, whereas things that belong to the mind are ultimately so personal that they sort of are unassailable because there's only the single self in what's known as the Cartesian right. theater, and that's right. the thing that you look out using your body, but you're distinct from it. So when that is the case, when we sort of have an, an, an assumed anthropology that works with that, it becomes very easy for anything that belongs to the realm of the self and sort of personal taste to be something that's unassailable. So that to say mm. that something is not beautiful could be a value claim that threatens another person because right. they think it's beautiful. Right. Um. 
So back to Torrance. Mm-hmm. If you were to encourage someone to read two or three of his books, <laughs> what would be the top two or three? Oh, and my. then why? Yeah. Yeah. There are a number of them. Shoot, he's written a whole bunch, and there's a lot to be said about diving into some of his harder books. But again, they're a lot harder. I think for an introduction, I I know there's one that was put out by E. M. Coyler, Coyler. Hmm. Yeah, uh, he has one that's just like an introduction to, to Thomas F. Torrance. Oh, it's not a book by Torrance. It's no, about no. him. But that's that is a tremendously helpful one if you just want themes and major topics and and the like. If you're looking for T. F. himself, I still think it's it it has more technical vocabulary. It's not written just for sort of the layman, uh, but he has a book called Space Time and Incarnation that. Which is about... <laughs> is just stunning. It, it is his taking the incarnation and trying to understand it within the realm of space and time. And now more, more so than that, it began as him looking at what's known as the, the problem of the Calvinist extra, which came up in, in Protestant mm-hmm. debates during the Reformation between Lutherans and, Prot- and, yeah. and um, Calvinists, principally over the Eucharist. Right. The nature of, of sort of the Eucharist becoming the body of Jesus, the body and blood of Jesus. And it started as just that. And he found out that it was enough for him to make a book and then a second book, which is Space, Time, and Incarnation. Or Space, Time, and Resurrection, I'm sorry. So the first one, Space, Time, and Incarnation, largely deals with the relationship of the Incarnation to space. And Space, Time, and Resurrection shifts the focus to space, to the incarnation, and time. So there's... Okay. While they, they cover mm. many of the same topics, the sort of... Just the the perspective looks a little more towards one, a little more towards the other. And in particular, his first chapter from Space, Time, and Incarnation, uh, where he covers patristic views of space mm. and how the concept of space changed from Greek philosophy into its meeting with Judaism and the early centuries of Christianity and what he takes as being one of the high points, namely the Council of Nicaea and the subsequent right. centuries that followed as they found by a thoroughgoingly scientific frame of mind that the demands that the Incarnation made on them about reorganizing their worldview even Wait, changed... That the Incarnation forced Greek-thinking people... Mm-hmm to rethink how they view space, time. Yeah, even space and time, that they are not distinct things. I mean, this gets even to the point of So that's of saying, like early hints of Einsteinian physics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So TFT even gets to a point, there's a, a theologian from the 4th or 5th century whose name is John of Philopanos. Okay. Who, on Torrance's read, uh, came up with a view of inertia and a kind of uh, response and reply to Aristotle and Plato that is surprisingly, surprisingly cognate with Einsteinian physics. Hmm. So you have a guy from the 6th century who's coming up with things thoroughly based out of a Christian theology. Right. Coming up with physics. I mean, he himself was a physicist. Right, but he was saying things that really would not be said again for 14 centuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on, on 
principally on the idea of, of space being how we would think now is relativistic. That it's not necessarily a, a grid, like you think of a Cartesian grid of points and blocks. That space is sort of the intersection of particular lines or whatever, but rather that it's a little more gooey than that. It can, it can be <laughs> compressed, it can be expanded, it can dilate. You know, it, it is not as rigid as we want to think it is, or right. especially as we want to think it is post-Descartes and post-Newton. And That just makes me think of mm-hmm. Doctor Who, Doctor Who, mm-hmm. and time as being time, wait, wibbly-wobbly. Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Yeah, there's, there's almost a bit of that. Almost, but not quite. But, I mean, the, the, the most intriguing thing about that, then, is that on the level of, of being, of ontology itself, mm-hmm. it means that, so, you know, the most basic level that we can get to, that tends towards recognizing within a Christian frame of mind and a Christian sort of outlook that the being of God and the being of the created order are not mutually exclusive things. So that they can both exist in the same place? That you can have two things at the same place and at the same time that are human and divine or created and divine. Now, of course, for Torrance and for a great many theologians, that's going to be Jesus is, is the unique, not even receptacle. He's, he's, he's really critical of receptacle language because that mm. assumes a view of space that is ultimately Aristotelian. Right, that makes Jesus into just a cup that was filled with some other... Of a sort, yeah. That then leads to a whole host of other Christological problems. Okay. So then there's the introduction book. Mm-hmm. There is Space, Time, and Incarnation. What mm-hmm. would be a third? If you want, one, again, this would be a challenge. And this would be more for the person who has done some other theological reading. He has a book entitled The Trinitarian Faith. which oh, that's is that's a good one. It's an yeah. incredible book, yeah. And it's, it's largely his. He goes clause by clause through the Nicene Creed. Which... The Nicene Creed was, for anyone that doesn't know. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. the Nicene Creed was, well, I guess it followed from the Council of Nicaea in 325. In 325, and then it was finalized in 381. Subsequently, the (laughs) Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381, yeah. Yeah. Um, That effectively is one of the early, early in in scare quotes, or in quotes, It's, it's one of the early systematic formulations of what Christians believe. And in many cases, mm-hmm. interestingly, in many cases, our translations today do a, do a disservice to it because many of our translations today begin with, I believe, X, Y, and Z. When the original text of them was, we believe, as they were written by oh, a, as a council. Community. They were written by a council of bishops who wrote this document and signed on to it saying, we believe in all the following clauses. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that's... But something. that was seen as one of the earliest and best interpretations of the Christian faith, mm-hmm. building upon yeah. the Old and New Testaments. Yeah. Every single clause is making a theological claim and a theological counterclaim. Right, and it was all argued over mm-hmm. the course of 60 years-ish. Yeah. Ish. yeah. But that's, that's a tremendously helpful book because Torrance, you know, using the Nicene Creed as a framework, going clause by clause... Mm-hmm. He is then able to talk about a host of the issues that take place sort of in and behind every clause. So which includes, right. I'm sure, I'm sure he includes some material from space, time, and incarnation mm-hmm. and space, time, and resurrection. I know he also 
has a, there's a chapter where he deals with the, the tremendous importance of Athanasius as a theologian, who was one of the primary theologians right. during that period of time. The North African mm-hmm. bishop. Uh, and then he also includes, very interestingly, he includes a chapter, at least, or, or a section of a chapter on the theolo- theological problem of the filioque, which is the, the Latin term meaning and the son, and concerns one of the larger church divisions that occurred mm-hmm. and have, has occurred within church history. Uh, the split itself began in about 1054, formally began, and was uh, actually healed of a sort in the 90s, which is one of the other huge, tremendous things that people just have no idea happened. Uh, mm-hmm. There actually has been... T.F. Torrance was one of the people with who worked in conjunction with the World Council of Churches in order to actually write a document either between the Reformed Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church and possibly Roman Catholicism. But he, he worked on, on the sorts of sort of committees that ultimately saw the end of that particular division. And it's so recent that many, many, many people don't know that actually occurred. Mm-hmm. And as far as church history is concerned, that is a tremendous, tremendous split to to bring together or to start bringing together. Yeah, so I think those would be the three. There's, there's one not directly written by him, one that you can just sort of get into and find yourself lost and find <laughs> challenging your views of space and it will just sort of mess with you for a while. In a good way. Oh, in the best way, yeah. And then... If you want to take a, a really challenging text, it would be that one. Challenging, but still fairly accessible. If you want something really challenging, then there are other books I can recommend. Right. But what I, <laughs> yeah, and what I like about these guys that we've referenced is they're all people that really did some incredibly deep intellectual mm. and academic work, all from coming of a place of... A faith background for at the end of the day they still said they believe in Jesus and this is the way oh sure many of them, them worked and lived in church communities like they, they were they held ecclesial posts right but it, it's yeah. it just feels like those two fields are seen as separate mm-hmm. maybe not against each other but like this doesn't talk to that that doesn't talk to this mm-hmm. and yeah. I really like the idea because I don't think there's many people that feel as though you can be a highly rigorous thinker mm-hmm. and still maintain a vibrant Christianity. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, that, that comes down to not just the Cartesian split, but the, the Platonic dualism that is still rampant and informs so much of the underlying current right. of Western Which And thinking. that's the, the physical versus the spiritual divide. Yeah. In many ways, that same thing will come out such that, you know, to be more intellectual means, in some measure, less thought of your body. So academics are bookish and frail and nerdy or something. Uh, and everybody else... Frail like, and nerdy. Yeah, and everybody else goes out and, like, works and does things, you know. Um, oh, man. Yeah, so there's... And that that's a, that's a division and a distinction that they didn't work with tf didn't work with bart didn't really work with tf thought it was it was one of the most one of the least helpful things about western thinking like to a t 
that and, dualism. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and and many of his arguments are Christological, to say that 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 doesn't hold well. That being wow. and act are these things that need to be that that are in fact united. Right. We just make a false dichotomy by differentiating them. Right, which is why in church dogmatics, Bart defines God as according to two things, as act and being Mm -hmm. and being in act. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Well, this is a good first one. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's, if there's time, we could probably follow one of those threads a little further. Oh yeah. Especially the dualism. Yeah. That could be really interesting. That one is, that's, it's tremendously interesting and it's tremendously hard because it's the sort of thing that you have to realize well, it, it's like whole framework thinking. Like yeah. everything's got to be revamped once you make that switch. Well, and it's it's even making the switch that's hard. Like it's, it's, this is the sort of thing where you have to recognize from the onset that the very architecture of your mind is working against you here. <laughs> so this is not an easy thing at all to, to work through because you have, the moment you, you start to make more of this kind of talk and more of this kind of uh, uh, shift many things will not make sense to you anymore. Well, and many things will not make sense to the person who's still in that camp that you will say, because right. they're working with this division that you're not working with. Do you want to, trying not to, maybe you can close. Do you want to tell the story of the piano teacher and the piano hands with Torrance? I don't remember this. One, no, in fact, no, Torrance was known that over at New College in Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Scotland, he would always or often start his lecture series. If he was starting a class, he would say, this, this class will be difficult because the more that we will look at the gospel, it will change the structure of your brain. Just like a piano player at first to make all the stretches and to reach all the keys, it won't happen at first. It'll kind of hurt until you learn to develop those muscles, those reflexes, those abilities to do mm. that. It's not that being a Christian is anti-logic. It's that it does what? It reframes the logic. It yeah. reshapes it. It, it recolors it. it. It changes many, many things. Yeah, and that that change will not, does not have to be easy. In many ways, it's not. Um, there's another aspect of this, uh, which maybe some other time we will get into, but it's the increasing sort of status of an implicit Epicureanism in Western thinking. Wow. Yeah, that. Comes from I'm sure a, there's people that just heard that word and they're like, I have no idea what that means. Yeah, it comes <laughs> from a couple of very interesting sources that I'm only starting to pick up on, having gone through the science and religion program. Okay. Yeah, but there's there's something very interesting going on with that. All right, that'll have to be another one. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> it's a fun one. All right, we'll do another one next. Sounds good. At some point. Bye.